Welcome to Your Brain On by Salience Learning. I'm Karen Foster. And I'm Krista Gerhard. This is part three of our series with Dr. Clark Quinn, author and recognized leader in learning technology strategy. We hope you enjoy. I was just looking over the World Economic Forum's top skills report for 2025 came out in analytical thinking and innovations number one. And Clark, in previous discussions we've had, I found that connection of how L&D could really be the mediator for innovation within pharmaceutical organizations, because it is learning, right? It's having that that process of starting without the end in mind, of generating ideas, of sharing and and following the model you just quoted, right? It's 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 seeking new information, new opportunities, making and applying and evaluating that, sensing that, and then sharing that with various colleagues. I, I just thought that was a, a really neat perspective that I think a lot of our clients, you know, thinking bigger, right? And how L&D can really be that strategic partner to the organization, not just in training of a knowledge or a skill, but in driving that greater culture of learning and driving innovation in organizations that rely on it for their future business uh, opportunities. Well, that's just it. Uh, Same as practices in formal learning often aren't aligned with how our brain works, so too are the practices in the org about what leads to innovation. They do dumb brainstorming practices, for instance. Um, They don't make sure everybody has a chance to generate their own ideas before they bring them together, which just squelches some of the opportunities of ideas that you might generate and explore if you did that right. So I appreciate that you've heard that message because I think it's really important. (laughs) Yeah. And and it really takes as something with salience we're really passionate about is is getting those L&D professionals in pharma and biotech, not just a seat at the table, but a valued seat at the table and coming with their foundation on empirical evidence of social science research and conclusions on how the brain works or what we know of it from a cognitive level. So to see that as, a, as even a bigger opportunity is really kind of inspiring. So. Maybe we could talk a little bit about some of the um, the concepts within your book, specifically um, one around designing for the learning, not the learner, and and providing a little bit of clarification on that because we are we're a big proponent of advocating for the learner, um, and sometimes I feel like things may be lost in translation. So I'd love to hear a little bit more around the concept of designing for learning, not the learner. Right. Uh, that's sort of my, um, you know, barrier to learning styles. There, there's a lot of uh, people who say, oh, well, you know, we have to design for men differently than women. We have to design differently for different learning styles. We have to design differently for different ages, generations, you know, millennials. And our brains like to characterize and categorize things, but we can overdo that. And we don't have good prescriptions for how to design for different learners. We don't have ways to reliably categorize them. A lot of the categorizations are made up uh, because they're good for marketing, but they actually don't mean anything. If you look at most of you know the stuff that says how to market to millennials or how to help millennials learn, it's actually just good learning design. <laughs> it's not any different for millennials than anybody else. It's just um, it's marketing hype. So. And we do know that when you have different types of learning outcomes you're trying to achieve, 
There are different pedagogies that work better. Now, you do need to know your audience. You want to know what they care about. And if there are any things that do distinguish them from others, you can leverage that. But you're doing that as part of the design to increase the likelihood of the outcome being the learning. And it's a way to try and prevent people from trying to you know, create multiple representations. Multiple representations are great, but not because they're hitting different learning styles. It's because they're giving us different channels to uh, process this information. I still, to this day, probably every week hear someone say, well, you know, if you like to absorb things visually, like they may not say they're a visual learner, but they're, and then of course you have to say, well, 60% of the cortex is dedicated to visual learning. You know, we're all visual, right? (laughs) I mean, so it's, and yet, and then to that point, if I always use the example of, well, if you were going to teach you know, the difference between Bach and Beethoven, would you show people their their musical scripts, right? Would you just, you know, as a visual learner, I guess I would just show you the, the notes on their, and you'd compare and contrast and people look at me like, no, you would listen to their music. And I go, exactly, right? So the outcome is start from the end and, and engineer based upon that, because when you, when you start to kind of deconstruct that for, for individuals and share examples, they do start to see where see where it's a bit uh wonky yeah you're right karen and yet you know anybody who's taught recognize that learners differ the problem is that they don't deliver in reliable ways they change depending on what they're learning exactly the what music versus art um and they uh you know face the moon and and what whether it's morning or afternoon they change in lots of ways but we can't reliably identify and there's no evidence that adapting learning to the learner in that way leads to any better outcomes when there is evidence that designing for the learning outcome leads to better outcomes. So yes. Yeah. And, and, and that's why for, for Krista and I, having been pharmaceutical reps in our previous lives, right, we were, that's the basis for the pharmaceutical and biotech industries reliance on empirical evidence, right? That's the whole story of, Hey, we did these clinical research trials and found these things to be, you know, predictable and benefit for your patients. And so why it's such a natural combination or, or complementary situation for us to say to L and D people, to your point, Clark, you know, well, there is evidence on this particular approach of designing for learning outcomes. Doesn't it make sense to rely on that for your decision? And they all say, yeah, actually it does. <laughs> yeah. You can get the message there, but it may take some interesting ways to get them. So, well, and, and we all come with, I think, I think the challenge with learning per se is that we all have a rich sample size, right? We all went to K-12 and all likely, you know, higher education and maybe additional education. And probably a lot of that was delivered didactically, right? From a teacher at the front of the room or an instructor or a massive lecture hall. And and then stretch it into your professional developments or your conferences, like like even you mentioned, I'm sure even at, you know, uncertain learning conferences I've gone to, it's a didactic presentation, right? So the challenge I think is fighting that volume of um, empirical data we all bring to the story. And uh, I don't know if you would agree, but. Well, I do. And um, there are times when going to conferences are valuable because you're day to day involved in it. So I talk about learning as action and reflection. So instruction should be designed action and guided reflection. 
But when you're in your day-to-day work, you are performing. So conferences and hearing somebody give a didactic presentation about their experience or their uh, new models that can provide new insight into what you're doing are a reflection opportunity. But you have to be involved. And so much of formal instruction assumes, you know, treats novices like expert practitioners, and that's silly. (laughs) <laughs> they need meaningful practice and guidance, and they don't know what they need, and they don't know why it's important. So we give them a lot of formal instruction. But once you start becoming a practitioner, you start to know what you need and why it's important. You just need it. And then as an expert, there is anybody who can tell you what you need. What you need are other experts to rub up against to advance the field. And I don't mean to say that going to conferences is bad. I mean, I think that's going to be, you know, it's, it's very valuable. To, to, to your point, it sounds like that iron sharpening iron, right, of expertise, um, and and I think what you're nailing on is is something that's also important when you're designing for for learning. And you mentioned it is knowing your audience, right? And knowing their prior knowledge and knowing their prior experience. Because, and yet with adults, it's often so challenging because unlike children, right? If you're in fifth grade and you're ten years old, there's a pretty you know expected range, right, of knowledge and skill. But with adults, you could have a population of 30 in a room and you could have a novice, maybe not first job out of, out of college, but maybe, you know, two, three years experience. And then you could have someone with 25 years experience. So I guess I'd love to hear what does the science say for for designing or approaching right, based upon that, that, that diversity of, of population? You're right that it gets the breadth, that diversity gets broader as you get older. And I think one of the opportunities, Krista mentioned blended learning, we can get everybody leveled up before we bring them face to face. And somebody may take a lot more than another person, but we can give them. Um, I want to add, you said, you know, for learners, we need to know what they know and their prior experience. I want to add for learning experience design to make it motivating. You also want to know what interests them. And that can play a role as well. But going back to the specifics and what I mentioned earlier, probably the most important thing we can do is get more meaningful practice. If I had one thing I'd suggest that learner, learning designers do, it would be make sure your practice is very, you know, even if it's set in a fantastic setting, make sure that what you're having them do in the learning experience is what they end up needing to do. You can do, you know, just better written multiple choice questions. So instead of knowledge tests, there are many scenarios. You can use branching scenarios, what Clark Aldrich is calling short sims. but that would be the first and most important thing to do. And the second most important thing to do would be to make sure that you're considering the emotional trajectory of the experience as well as the just the educational one. Well, thank you, Clark, for sharing so many insights today. Thank you for sharing uh, a little bit about your book. Uh, you know, everybody be sure to check it out. I think it's a great uh, resource, especially for uh, learning and development professionals in the life sciences industry, trying to bring in that learning science into everything that they do. So pick up your copy of Learning Science for Instructional Designers from Cognition to Application. Uh, we've really enjoyed speaking with you today and just can't thank you enough for joining our, our podcast and, and having this great discussion. Well, thank you, Krista, for the opportunity, and to Karen as well. I found the discussion enlightening and fun, um, impressed with your guys' approach to thing. So uh, thanks for the opportunity, and uh, I wish you guys the best. Thank you for listening to this episode of Your Brain On. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Krista Gerhard. And I'm Karen Foster. And we'll see you next time.